and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, do we have a children's book that we could read in this one? I think we have a children's book we might be able to read in this one. This is very exciting. All right. Before we introduce our amazing guest, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are in the podcast. So I'm Richard Litauer. Happy to be here today. Eric Berry is joining us. Eric, how are you? Doing great, Richard. Excellent. And we also have Alyssa Wright. Alyssa, how are you doing? Hi, all. Good to be here. Good to have you. Oh, right. And now our amazing guest. We have Josh Montgomery. Josh is joining us today from Holuoloa, Hawaii, where he is one of the co-founders of Mycroft AI. Mycroft is an open source voice assistant and smart speaker that customers could access, change, hack, and customize. In 2017, Amazon made this pretty cool, as you know. One of the things we're really excited to talk about Joshua today is that he has written a children's book called Mycroft and the Patent Trolls. Very exciting small children's book about a pretty wonderful story that I think relates very well to open source sustainability. So with no more ado or gilding the lily, Josh, how are you doing? Having a good day? I am doing great. It is a, always a beautiful day in Hualaloa, Hawaii. The unbeautiful days are few and far between. So I am incredibly envious. <laughs> That's such a cool place to be. So tell us about yourself. How did you start founding Mycroft AI? What got you to that point? We're talking from my makerspace here in Hualuoloa, and that really is the root of the technology that we started building. We had a makerspace in Lawrence, Kansas, adjacent to the University of Kansas back in 2015. And, you know, we wanted to build the same type of voice experience that Iron Man has in, you know, his lab, the Tony Stark voice assistant that, you know, can help around the lab and provide a fusion between the internet and the real world. Because that's really what voice assistants are. It's an augmented reality audio overlay over the room that it's in that augments, you know, the real world with the virtual world and gives you access to the entire internet via voice. We all thought that we were going to be accessing AR with like these fancy glasses. And I guess Facebook has some new spy glasses out this week that would like, you know, create images over the top of everything, kind of the, the way that you read about in Rainbow's End. And what it turns out is that the first really widely adopted use of augmented reality is the smart speaker. So anyway, so we wanted to build this Tony Stark experience. And at the time, the only thing on the market was Siri, which was, you know, locked up in the Apple ecosystem. You know, they didn't even have a smart speaker. And certainly you couldn't customize and change it and do what you wanted to do. And we looked around and we discovered, hey, like all of the pieces that you need to do this are out there, right? Like the full language speech to text and speech synthesis. And, you know, there were a couple different intent frameworks. And so we decided to do it. And, and because we were a makerspace, you know, a hackerspace, the, the business that was supporting it was my broadband business, uh, which is committed to net neutrality. You know, we went, decided to do it in an open way. And then, you know, six months later, Amazon launched the Echo and, you know, at the Super Bowl in 2016. And all of a sudden it would became kind of the thing. So, and from that point on, it, it's really been a roller coaster ride. And, uh, you know, the, the four original founders, you know, it, it would be me and, and Derek Schweppe, who's still our chief of design, Ryan Sipes, who stepped out to run the Thunderbird community over at Mozilla. And my other co-founder, Chris Adair, who, you know, makes all of the, the gears move and mesh the way that they're supposed to move and mesh at the company. I love that. Ryan is awesome. We had him on the podcast a while ago. He's doing amazing work at Thunderbird. So you're building Jenkins. That's really cool, right? Building the AI thing that Tony Stark uses. And obviously not the other Jenkins, which is totally different. It's probably why you didn't say that, because you're smarter than I am, which is okay. You are Tony Stark. 
open source voice assistant sounds really cool. But one of the ways that I know Siri and Amazon are able to do what they do is because they have massive amounts of data. How do you build this without having huge amounts of data to access? Yeah. So, you know, with us, by default, we keep everything private. So we don't keep logs. Uh, we don't keep, you know, we keep data only as long as it's relevant to be providing the customer with service. Right. And, you know, as, a, as an open source platform, you know, we've made all of the source code for the back end and the front end available so that people can run the system entirely offline if they're willing to put up with the pain of setting up all of the services that it depends on. And, you know, that's our default starting position with our customers. But, you know, we ask our customers, the ones that are interested in improving the technology to opt in to share their data. And because we're transparent and because we're open and because our our business model is not based on spying on people and selling their data or selling them services the way that the, the Silicon Valley giants do. People do trust us with that data. And, you know, that community, you know, not only do they donate data, but, it, you know, in the past, we've deployed tools that, that allow the community to reach in and help to classify that data so that we can then in turn use it to train the artificial intelligence algorithm. So, the way that we get access to data is by being good stewards of our customers' data and then giving customers the choice of how that data is used. And I think that's, you know, it's that choice component that the Silicon Valley majors are missing. The choice that they give customers is we own everything about you or you don't use our services. And in our case, it's, you know, you can certainly use it. Tanstaffle, you get what you pay for, you know, so we do ask customers to, to pay to use the system. And we do get quite a few that do that voluntarily, but it's a real choice for our customers. And they've been willing to trust us as a result. When you say they've been willing to trust us, who is us? Because this is an open source community. How large is the community? Are there, what kind of people are in it? Sure. So the community just broke 65,000. It's mostly developers. (laughs) That's awesome. It's mostly developers and early stage adopters. A vast majority of people are using the Minecraft stack on a PC or on a Plasma TV with the KDE folks or on, you know, their own Raspberry Pi. You know, we only shipped, I think, 2,000 of the Mark 1s and we've only shipped a few hundred of the Mark 2 dev kits. And, And that community consists of people, you know, everybody from people who can make core contributions in the area of machine learning and artificial intelligence to people whose only contribution to the project is, you know, that they use the smart speaker and make their data available. And what we're trying to do at Mycroft, in order to make it sustainable, in order to you know to create a community that you know can move forward with or without the company, right, is create a spectrum of contribution for the software that allows anybody from somebody whose only skill is they speak English or one of our other supported languages like Catalan or Spanish or German, you know, and that's all they're they're able to contribute all the way to the the hardcore developer who's you know writing artificial intelligence software in C. And I think we do have a good continuum of contributors within that community. And our goal is because it is so much weighted towards the people who can donate data and then tag data and then, you know, maybe participate by building some drag and drop skills. You know, our goal is to make it easier for those people to contribute and then to do as much of the heavy lifting as we can, you know, using company resources. When we ran CodeFund a couple of years ago, one of the big focuses that we had was ethical advertising. But the ethics were critical. They were the reason why we got got into it. But what we found in that process is that most people don't want ethical ads. They don't want the ethical side because it doesn't produce the value that most people with the money are willing to pay for. I'm wondering if you face the same challenges, whereas 
Your competitors, in my view, are highly unethical. They'll capture anything that they can and parse it. Oftentimes, my wife and I could be talking about something, and later that night, she sees an ad for it. Tell me about the challenges you face trying to maintain that ethical boundary without, but still be competitive. I would argue that the boundary is more related to fundraising and funding than it is to operations, right? So let me unpack that. You know, we've gone to our community and our supporters and the broader public to raise money instead of kind of going down that VC route. I mean, we do have a bunch of institutional funds that invested, but, you know, we raised a, you know, a Kickstarter, then we raised a million dollars in equity crowdfunding where, you know, the general public could buy stock, did another Kickstarter, and we're now in the middle of another fundraising round where we're using crowdfunding. They've changed the limit from a million to, to 5 million, which is meaningful for a company our size. And so we're out raising money right now on Start Engine. The ethical component of it comes into the fact that so many investors made so much money backing surveillance capital. The bigger investors look at companies that are behaving ethically around data acquisition and advertising and say, well, you can't possibly win because, you know, we won so big with Facebook and Google. And and I do want to say, you know, I don't think it's just your opinion that they're acting unethically. Many of the Silicon Valley giants, I mean, for example, Google is under indictment by all 50 states in the United States. They're under indictment by the federal government. They're under indictment from multiple nations in the EU. And then they're under indictment from the European Union. Honestly, the only people who seem to like the Silicon Valley giants data acquisition strategies are, you know, the folks that can use them to control their populations, right? Like authoritarian states. And, you know, they are behaving unethically. And so, you know, from a business operations side of things, though, I think that we're a little different from the advertising space. One of the things that comes immediately to mind when you have an always listening device sitting in your kitchen with that camera and that screen staring at you is the potential for surveillance. And it really surfaces in people's minds in a way that it really doesn't with, you know, this device, right, which has two microphones, two cameras, a network connection you don't control and an operating system you don't control. And it's attached to a company that's got a long history of being indicted by, for privacy violations, right? People, for whatever reason, don't view these as tracking devices. They're more concerned about the mythical chips in their vaccine than they are about the monitoring device they carry around with them 24 hours a day. And so, you know, for whatever reason, smart speakers really kind of break that wall, right? A smart speaker is just a step too far for a lot of people. And so what we've discovered is there's about 20% of the public out there that want the convenience of this smart speaker, want the convenience of having this augmented reality experience where they can listen to the music they want and have questions answered and, you know, do all the things that you want to do with the smart speaker, but do not trust Silicon Valley. And for us, that's our bread and butter. And from a business development standpoint, our goal is to you know, provide value to our customers in a way that makes them willing and eager to pay for it. And, and right now, our, our customers pay us a couple dollars a month for the privilege of being Mycroft users. Like we don't add a lot of value other than, you know, they connect to our servers and we do speech to text and credential management and stuff. But in the future, you know, we're looking for partnerships with music streaming companies and others that can add real value to those subscriptions so that, you know, you're paying $9 a month for your voice assistant, but, you know, it comes with music and maybe some specialty applications. And then, you know, from a sustainability perspective, you know, the next step to that is to take that revenue and share it with the people in the community who are building the skills that power the technology. And so it's kind of a two-step process where we work with commercial companies until we build enough value and enough scale to make it interesting. And then 
eventually, you know, the people who are building great skills for Mycroft, whether that's, you know, a great weather skill that becomes the default skill or, you know, something that allows them to do choose your own adventure puzzles. Whatever's getting the most engagement will get, you know, the biggest percentage of the monthly revenue. And that creates a sustainable revenue stream for the contributors, a sustainable revenue stream for the company, all without having to, you know, what I would argue is take the easy way out, which is, you know, spying on people. Yeah, just something we're not willing to do. Have you seen this business development model that you're talking about in any other space? Yeah, I mean, even in the open source space, and I I don't know how people feel about Plex, right? And I I don't really know what Plex's privacy policies are, but but Plex is a great example of a company that took an open source stack, XBMC, right? Or uh, I guess it's called Cody now, took that and built a sustainable business where they provide some additional features for people who are paid. You know, they provide a lot of the backend infrastructure to make all of Plex's magic work where you can host your own video on your, your own server. And then, you know, they've gradually started to add value added capabilities like streaming live TV and other things to the service. I think that's a great model. Now, Plex is backed by Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield Myers, uh, Byers, I believe. And, you know, Kleiner Perkins has made some investments in some surveillance capital companies like that. Let's be real. But I think that's a good example. And, and you know, depending on how they do stand on privacy, I, you know, that might be a, a good model for not only us, but other companies that are building these services to, to follow. It seems like what you have is you're building uh, essentially an alternative to Amazon's Alexa service. Am I understanding this correctly? Like, do you mind giving us your 30 second, 60 second pitch for your company real quick, just so we can all be on the same playing field? Uh, Voice is the fastest growing segment of the technology sector. In fact, it's the fastest growing segment of the technology sector ever. Voice is growing faster than a smartphone screw. And if you remember back in 2006, 2007, everybody went from having a flip phone to having a smartphone basically overnight. Voice is actually growing faster than that. It's growing faster than the adoption of reading and writing. And, you know, you have a bunch of Silicon Valley companies that have made huge investments that have really created this market. But you have about 20% of the general public that doesn't trust those companies with their information. And so Minecraft provides a voice assistant and a smart speaker experience that's on par with what you'd expect from any of the Silicon Valley giants, but respects people's privacy and uh, provides them with great service without having to sacrifice the intimacy of their home. You know, and that's 20% of a $24 billion market. So we're really well positioned. We are the open source voice assistant. You know, everybody else either got bought or folded. And we remain independent because we have been so committed to, to privacy and user agency and, you know, are looking forward not only to commercial success, but also doing that with our moral compass pointed firmly to the north. I mean, I'm sold. So <laughs> excellent. Now we're raising money at Start Engine now. You just come to our webpage, Mycroft AI and hit the invest now thing. That would be great. <laughs> excellent. I will do that in a second. Unfortunately, I'm still pretty busy at the moment. One question I have for you is you mentioned giving back to the community. Have you thought about how that would work and what do you mean by the community? Do you mean everyone who's all the 65,000 people or just the coders or just the developers? How tall do you have to be to ride the ride of getting investment back? I think that there's a number of ways to do it. You know, the most obvious is that we bring community built skills or community managed skills into the default distribution with the voice assistance that these other companies ship. You know, they support the core skills and then the other skills that are added are kind of after the fact. And you may or may not pay for those. And I don't know if they're taking a percentage, but if they're not, they eventually, I'm sure they will. And so in our case, we want to do it a little different. You know, we want to bring community generated skills into core 
and distribute them as part of the smart speaker that's on sale at your local big box. And, you know, the more value that skill adds and the easiest way to measure value is how often it's used. Obviously, there's some issues with potential, you know, the equivalent of click fraud there, right? But, you know, paying attention to how often a skill is used, not by whom, not what it's used for, but just how often it's triggered. And then, you know, creating a database that says, okay, well, you know, the weather skill represents 20% of total queries to Mycroft, and that's being maintained by Bob in Spain. And so, you know, we take the community portion of the monthly revenue and we lop off 20% and we send it to Bob. And that makes Bob a, a, you know, a professional developer who's really kind of running his own show, but his contributions to the stack result in monetary remuneration for him. Now, I would love to expand that even further. And for people who are contributing data, so they're just saying, hey, I opt in to have my data used to train the AI or people who are classifying data, also being able to, to send some money their way, either in the form of credits to use the, the services on the back end or, or as actual you know, cash payments, possibly in the form of an established cryptocurrency. We're definitely not going down the road of becoming crypto people. But you know, maybe a, a small piece of Ethereum, you know, that, that I think could be a win for everybody involved. And the thesis behind building something like this and being competitive, the other companies in this space can all pour billions of dollars on. That's not something that we can really do. But if you look at the history of core technologies around the internet, you'll see that the open source players, the ones that had, in some cases, almost no resources, became the dominant players in the space because a million eyes make all bugs trivial and because you know nothing's cheaper than free. We see the opportunity to become really a significant platform simply by being the open source player. So that makes a ton of sense to me. And I, yeah, I I like that a lot. And I, I think you're right. Right. I think everything you're saying makes, again, not to be repetitive, perfect sense. I also love that you are from Kansas. And the reason is because of the XKCD comic that talks about the one developer in Kansas. And so you just mentioned Bob in Spain. He could have been from your hometown. It would have been fine. One of the questions I have for Bob is, will Bob send any of that money along to the dependencies that he is using? How far down the stack do you go? How far do you support people? Is it just people who have their names on top of the widget that's being used by the tool? Or is it actually we're trying to support the entire ecosystem of open source, which has got us where we are, which we're actively using somewhere in the line? Ideally, we'd support the whole thing, but that's way in the future. And there's a bunch of hypothetical and problematic issues related to that. Although I would love to see, I mean, there's an idea for Joe out there listening to this podcast, you want to create a startup, like create a startup that plugs into the ERC-20 ecosystem and creates a way for folks to distribute money all the way down the open source chain. The startup peels a small percentage off the top and, you know, Bob, who's contributing some supporting library for some random chunk of the Python stack, you know, can get paid for his work. But that's a whole startup right there. Somebody should go build it. I think for us, we need to focus on the obvious stuff. And then, you know, that's directly related to micro because we just, you know, we have 13 employees and 11 law firms, 13 employees. And, you know, we can only do what we, what we can do with that amount of resources, but we are supporting the broader community with those 11 law firms by taking on patent trolls and, you know, focusing on, you know, communicating the need for openness. And we're actually cutting some new and novel arguments in the patent troll world that hopefully will protect other open source projects in the future. I'm really glad you brought up patent trolls, and I really want to get to that in a couple of seconds. That's very exciting for reasons that will become immediately obvious to everyone. Before I do that, I will say that there are people working on funding the open source stack all the way down. 
This is one of the most interesting technical problems I think going on in this space. Floss Bank in Seattle, Joel Wasserman, awesome person. We've interviewed them on the podcast and also Foss Fund in Austin. This came off the top using just straight out investment strategies. Very smart people working on that. Can't wait to see how that goes. Looking forward to see if maybe you can integrate that in the future. But now patent trolls. So not only are patent trolls a thing that really suck, they're also a thing about which you can write children's books. And I bring this up because you seem to have done that between you and the 11 law firms that you hire. I'm, I'm confused. How did that start? So one of the things that we realized when we started battling a patent troll was that there wasn't a whole lot of innovation on the defense side. On the offensive patent troll side of things, you know, people have built venture-backed patent assertion entities that you know, go out and, and effectively extort billions of dollars from companies. But on the defensive side, you know, there, there hasn't really been a lot of innovation because, quite frankly, a vast majority of people don't defend themselves. And so we decided, like, what's the most innocent and innocuous way that we can criticize patent trolls in general? And we wrote a book about generic patent trolls called Mycroft and the Patent Trolls. It's a book that has you know, ups and downs, heroes and villains, twists and turns. It's a, a story about a man discovering his power in the world. And we published that to the broader internet. It's an interesting story to tell, and it communicates to people what patent trolling is. So anyway, it, it, it was fun. I think that it definitely tells the story in a great way, in an accessible way, in a way that even an elected member of the U.S. Congress can understand. And, and hopefully it, it drives some change within the law and within the, the treatment of trolls and it helps to raise awareness of the issue. I wish I could sit here dumbfounded and just have lots of silence, but it doesn't translate well into a podcast. Anyway, okay. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. That's like the Barbara Streisand effect, but for evil people. Wow. Very much so. I do have a direct question, which is related sure. to the strength of the diatribe. One of the questions I have is what run the entire concept of patents. How do you feel about patents themselves? A patent is a quid pro quo. It's a deal between the general public and the inventor. And the purpose of the patent is that the inventor discloses something of value. My favorite example is SawStop, right? SawStop's a technology that detects whether something of the consistency of human flesh is touching a circular saw and within a very small fraction of a second brings that saw to a complete stop. So that if you put your hand into a saw that has a saw stop on it, it will stop that saw cold and prevent you from losing your fingers. It's a very obvious invention. You can look at it and you could reproduce it. And so the guy who invented saw stop patented it. And as a result, he gets a 20 year exclusivity period where he can sell saw stop saws, him only, and kind of enter that market. And after 20 years, everybody can do it. Delta can do it. DeWalt can do it. Everybody can build one into their technology. And so the public gets better, safer saws after 20 years. And the inventor gets a, a monopoly on the technology long enough to get some money out. So there's been an exchange of value between the public and the inventor. The problem with patent trolls and the problem with software patents in general is that the patents themselves are garbage. Nobody can look at the two patents that this person has asserted against us and get anything of value out of it. It's just a bunch of gobbledygook about software in this block and that block. And it exists solely to extort money from companies that are actually building technologies. And so, you know, the patent system needs to be reformed in a number of ways. But, you know, I think that the two biggest things that need to happen is number one, it needs to be much, much harder to get a patent in terms of obviousness and in terms of people 
who have expertise in the area of being able to reproduce it. So that's number one. And then number two, they need to create a process that makes it extremely inexpensive and easy to challenge patents as they're going through the process to get them revoked if they're bad. Because right now, you know, the person who's pursuing the patent has, in some cases, millions and millions of dollars worth of interests in getting that issued. And there's no interest on the other side on keeping it from being issued. And so I think we need to restore the patent system back to what it was originally intended for. You know, something of value needs to be disclosed that's new and novel and non-obvious. And then the person gets the exclusivity period. Today, they're simply being issued as weapons that big companies, or in this case, trolls, can use to extort money from others. Thank you. That was really clear. I agree with you. It's hard for me to defend patents in general because I think that the digital commons is really important. But then again, I'm a flaming firebrand, which is why I'm on this show. I really like sustaining everything for everyone in the long haul. Well, I would love to talk further about all of our alter egos because you've written a book about knights which wear suits of armor and you're making a company that does voice assistance as if for suits of armor. So really, I wonder like, are you Iron Man and what's going on there? But we'll have to deal with that another day. For now, I'm really grateful to have you on at all. It's been wonderful to talk about patent infringement. We don't often talk about it on this show. It has come up a couple times before. This episode has reminded me most of the one we had with Richard Ferreira from Red Hat, where it was just basically a bunch of legalese. And I'm like, oh, the world works according to those things, of course. And I always forget that. So thank you for the reminder, as eye-opening as it was. Before we close the show and really say thank you one last time, I want to ask a couple of things. First, where can people read more about you and about Mycroft? Sure. People can head to Mycroft.ai and have a look around the site. There's lots of history there. We've been covered pretty broadly, both in tech and business journals. And then, you know, folks who are interested in learning more about us financially can click on the Invest Now link. And, you know, as a Reg CF offering company, you know, all of our financial stuff is disclosed in public and, and anybody can look and see where we are and where we're headed. Thank you so much. And I believe on Twitter, you're OO Joshua. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't social media much anymore. I found it to be super negative. I agree with you. That's Yeah, totally agree with that one. Well, this is the positive part of the show now. This is the second question I wanted to ask, which is Spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, whatever, what have you, that we think just need the light shine on them for a second. Doesn't have to relate to what we had in the show. Just has to be something that we're just thinking about at the moment. Eric is currently eating. So I'm going to go with Alyssa first. Alyssa, what is your spotlight? I don't have a a specific project or event or, or book, but I've been reflecting on how valuable open source surveys and polls have been like to my journey. I just think it's really important to have, like I've been seeing a a couple of polls recently and it's been valuable to, I think, have conversation like with the community in these like quantifiable and, you know, in visualized ways. I know it's not the only way to understand communities and and community health, but I I think it's an important way to like build an understanding of what's going on and start uh, further dialogue. And I I will pass it to Eric. I, I think he's done eating. You're not. <laughs> I'm not dating seeds. I'm, it's not a big deal. So I think a long time ago, I spotlighted the chair that I use, which is the Embody chair. What I've recently discovered is something pretty amazing, which I've been using this whole time. And little did you know, I have been getting a full back massage this whole time. So 
you know, the older you get, your back starts going out, you start hurting. And, but I'm in this chair all day long, so I figured I better get something good. So I found this back massager. It's by a company called Comfier, C-O-M-F-I-E-R, Comfier. Anyway, it's a fantastic chair. If you have the Embody chair by that really expensive company <laughs> or, or whatever. Thank you so much. My spotlight is Greg. Greg is the unsung hero behind peakbagger.com. Peakbagger.com is one of my favorite websites. I can log all the mountains that I go to on it. There's like every hill in the world is on Peakbagger. It's basically one of the few places I go to get shiny internet points. But the only way I get the points is by hiking up obscenely tall or obscenely small mountains. So Greg has been doing it as a hobby for like 30 years. And it's not really open source, but it's just his website and lets other people use it. And I just love that. So peakbagger.com run by Greg. Thank you so much. So Josh, what's your spotlight? Sure. So I'm spotlight in the context of gratitude. You know, the Minecraft project, when it originally got started, was like 30 lines of Python. And a big chunk of that was translated from a C application written by a gentleman named Stephen Hickson. Stephen's now a like a high level AI researcher at Google. But at the time, he was still a college kid. And, you know, we took that itty bitty little C program and have built an entire global community you know, we're shipping Mark II's to 59 countries. We've got, you know, tens of thousands of people in our community. You know, we've given open source a voice in, you know, this really important space when there was a chance that, that like a lot of other verticals, you'd have a choice of, you know, one Silicon Valley giant or another. And, you know, all of that is due to, you know, Stephen's original application that he built and, and published under the MIT license and, you know, allowed us to take that itty bitty little script and turn it into um, something that hopefully will keep open source relevant and voice for uh, decades to come. Thank you so much, Joshua. It's been excellent to have you on. Thank you. Good luck fighting the patent trolls. Let us know if we can help. Thank you for coming and talking to us. And I hope that Mycroft really just does really well in the future. I look forward to getting one because it does sound up my alley privacy first, but voice is also cool. Thank you again. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it.